Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I am your host, Glenn Kaiser. Well, if you're like me, you have been mesmerized by the Netflix show, The Crown. It's Emmy season once again, and The Crown has been nominated for an incredible 24 different Emmys this year, including one for Best Drama Series. I'm really thrilled to be able to focus our conversation today on The Crown, and specifically on an episode from season four, the third uh, episode of the season called Fairy Tale. This is, uh, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, this is the episode that follows the romance, the courtship, and the eventual marriage of Prince Charles with Lady Diana Spencer. And uh, in addition to other nominations, this particular episode uh, is nominated for Best Picture Editing and Best Sound Mixing. And I am super excited to have on the show today the two artists who got those nominations, picture editor Jan Miles and supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer Lee Walpole. So uh, this episode is just a, it's a masterclass in nonverbal storytelling and the use of subtext. Lots and lots of really great stuff. So if you haven't watched it, I really encourage you to do so. And, uh, and then you'll be more informed for this uh, really fun episode where we um, really dive into this episode and talk with these amazing artists about how they pulled this off and made this really just an amazing episode of The Crown. It was my pleasure to sit down uh, with Jan and Lee to talk about the work uh, on the entire series, but on this episode in particular. So let's hear what they have to say. Lee and Jan, thank you for joining us today on the Dolby Institute podcast, and congratulations on your Emmy nominations for this episode of The Crown, Fairy Tale, episode three, season four. Um, it's quite a, it's, it's a, a really amazing episode. Um, and you guys have been with the show, uh, Lee, you've been, I believe you worked on all four seasons, all the episodes and Jan, you've cut in at least one episode in each season. Is, is that right? Pretty much. Even Yeah. We've been in it from the beginning, actually. Yeah. We've been on quite a journey. I think one of the things that really struck me about this episode is um, how much nonverbal information is coming to the audience. And there's a couple of sequences that I want to talk about. But I, I, I want to ask you both about, um, I'm always curious about the decisions around how to start the story and how uh, an episode or a film opens. And in this one, there's such a, uh, obviously the episode begins with this wonderful montage of everyone uh, you know, sitting around by the phone waiting for uh, Prince Charles to call with the news that he has proposed to uh, Lady Diana Spencer. And um, it's just, a, it's such a remarkable montage. One of the things I love about it is that from a, an acoustic standpoint, um, everything starts so small and delicate, uh, you know, for the first like minute or two of this episode, really all we're hearing is air and some birds and, you know, the, the ubiquitous clock ticking, that, that seems to be a recurring acoustic element of, of this episode of The Crown. So I wanted to ask you both sort of those decisions around the formalism, uh, both of the editing and the sound and the, the stillness and the quiet of it. How does that sort of reinforce and give us a sense of, of the power of the royal family? I'm just I'm fascinated by how you're communicating to us using picture editing and sound to give us that sense of who these people are um well it's it's, it's interesting is it that um 
you know, for for most of us mortals, we don't sort of live in these sort of big spaces and stuff and these sort of huge rooms. And, it, and I think, you know, it, it's it, it's a sort of challenge to sort of how, what, what sort of one conveys in, in that space. And, I, and it's, it's in that early, in that sort of montage, um, you know, it was very clear from the very beginning, you know, uh, the idea was that, you know, the clocks would sort of, the, the clocks are the sort of ticking bomb, you know, and that sort of uh, takes us from sort of room to room, you know, until the phone call happens. It's it's these little ideas that sort of, um, sort of wed it together. And it was really interesting. You sort of really analyse the scene. The scene is completely out of order, you know. It sort of happened, that the, the scene happened ages ago with Diana and the telephone call, you know, it's sort of, we play around with time time and space which i think is sort of you know again it's very crown thing to do you know and, and on the call you know people answer different people's questions it 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 felt i mean it it actually felt what you know i think we sort of opened on a wide shot of windsor castle and, it, and that felt completely traditional you know it's sort of like that's not a very crown thing normally you sort of find yourself in the middle of a story so it felt we sort of go we we, we were sort of leading you in the audience in sort of go this is a fairy tale, and here's the castle, and here's the little car, and here's the little princess, you know, the small things. I mean, there's a little bit of detail, um, you know, by the telephone, which, and this is the sort of thing that Ben does, you know, that, in that, that we know later in the dialogue that there's a conversation about, you know, where, where was it, you know, it's in the nursery, like the nursery, you know, and that, by the telephone, he's got a small soldier figure in his hand. And it's these little sort of this again is that kind of detail that Ben does, the sort of macro thing. And he sort of pushes his finger as he's on the phone. And it's those little things that we come up with in the edit that sort of maybe people know, maybe people don't, but this sort of soldier represents duty. So when you get to the end of the episode and you get to the monologue with, with mother and she's basically saying it's your duty to go through with this. That's our idea that, that he's picked this little soldier up from the very first scene of the film, you know, so. It's sort of seeded in. Notice it at your, you know, your peril. But it's that it's those kind of little things. I find that you know you can have this big room, but you can have this small soldier. In the same way, you can have this this big sound, but you can have this small sound inside those spaces as well. And the clocks did that really well. We talked about the clocks, didn't we, Lee? Absolutely. About yeah, being the rhythm, like the sort of like as the film went on. We would change, adjust the tempos of the rooms slightly more. So the more Diana became embellished into this family that's faster the clock Scott that Lee will probably tell you more about that but yeah absolutely yeah so, so it'll be the, uh, the the same clock within a space but we'll time compress it so the ticking starts to speed up so you just get get an increased momentum and tension um just r really subtle stuff but yeah it was kind of we talked about this Lee didn't we in those sort of scenes with Diana you know when she's waiting I know we're jumping forward from the first scene you know but the scenes where she sort of waits in rooms and it was it, it was a sort of conversation we had we sort of how do you do waiting how do you do time passing how do you do silence you know it's sort of it's like that question how do you shoot a film in the dark you know and have it dark it was sort of those questions sort of came to us and we, we sort of answered them and i found again with that edit you know i could cut her from the bed a hard cut her to the window you know and then then you know lee would do something sort of small it'd be like the barefoot on the creaky floor to the window netting and they're really simple things but when you're watching it you just feel like you sat in there for hours like she has which is kind of you know this in that simplicity 
it works. Don't tell me how it works and why it works, but it does work. But, you know, it's... As I say, cu- cutting through time in empty rooms and quiet rooms is a challenge in itself. So that has, you know, different traffic things. A bus takes your ear on one cut. It's a plane on the next cut. There's a bird somewhere else. And as Jan says, you know, footsteps, small micro movements. But, yeah, just trying to... And, and it does play. And they're, they're quite... It's quite subtle atmospherically as a piece, the crown. But I'd say deceptively so. Um, there's actually a lot going on. It's just all very held back. And, and you know, we're always very aware on, on the show that we are a, a dialogue-led show and, and we don't want to distract from the dialogue at any given moment. But w- when the atmospheres are allowed to step forward, um, yeah. I think you got a lot of opportunity to play with those atmospheres on this. And and I'm glad that you 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 brought up that, you know, the work about establishing time passing for Diana. Our friends at Netflix have been gracious enough to give us a few clips to discuss. And and one of the ones that uh, I thought of when you were just talking about that is this, um, we, we have a, a clip of, I think this is uh, Diana early on. She's been moved into Buckingham Palace to get to be there to avoid the paparazzi and also to kind of be trained in the royal uh, etiquette. So this is a this is a a really wonderful sequence uh, of her waking up in her apartment in Buckingham Palace and sort of waiting for something to happen, and then they start to bring her mail to her and her letters. So let's take a listen to this clip. Morning, Mum. What's all this? It's your post, Mum. Right. Dear Lady Diana, I don't suppose you'll ever get to read this, but I wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed seeing the interview you gave with the Prince of Wales on television the other day. You looked then as it really must be love. I'm curious about the sound of Buckingham Palace. How did you, Lee, how did you kind of build the palette of sounds? And um, it's obviously, it's a lot of air, but it's, 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 there's also a lot of subtle uh, sound design work going on as well. Yes. Um, it's, it's quite rich and deep and warm. Um, as you say, it's extremely subtle stuff, but so there's always beds of, of various traffics running because we are in central London. We never want people to forget that. Um, and it's important to bring a set to life, isn't it? To, to create the world outside, to, to make the illusion complete. Um, so, I mean, whether anyone would ever notice, but yeah, you know, season season one was absolutely sort of period traffic. So you'd get those kind of the vintage cars pottering past and all very, very distanced because, you know, the palace is so set back. Um, 
And then as we've gone through the years, you know, we've arrived at the 80s now. So all of those kind of beds have had to evolve and, and, and move with time. Um, and then we use sort of route master buses are a great punctuation element. It's, it's always like those rooms. It's like, this is my best way to sort of understand it. It's, it's like, it's like, um, and I don't know if you sort of experience this. It's like when you go, when you go somewhere opulent, like a sort of really sort of expensive hotel, you know, and you sort of get in the foyer, there's that sort of something, you know, they sort of pump in the, that air, don't they? It's sort of slightly, there's something that makes you sort of feel, you sort of feel the opulence. There's, you know, you're sort of, you're, you're allowed into it. You know, for me, it's the sort of, it's that, it's that experience. It's like when you go into those rooms, you can sort of cut the air, you know, it's thicker. Like Lee's saying, it's warmer. It's like, and, and it's a, and, that, and that's, you know, I think what comes off on camera when they're sets is not that, you know, I think what, 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 you know, Lee and the guys do and we try and achieve in that is to sort of have that same, sensation and it is for me it is it's like the air it's like the the atmosphere in the room is is thicker in these places these these sort of people are, something to do with these people and that opulence allows that and then we've got so many layers of the stuff going on as well glenn because you're cutting from room to room in the palace and you want each of those spaces to feel different so of course you know each time as you're mixing the scene you're kind of playing with your settings there, you know, getting more low end, more you know, t- taking some air out and, and, and trying different things there. But, you know, I guess we're kind of playing with sort of 40 different beds of traffic, you know, that we're kind of you know, using a couple each time in each, each scene and uh, cutting back and forth between them. Um, and then another sort of real feature of the palace, I suppose, is trying to give it that sense of, of scale. So um, obviously doors are a big, bassy, sub, you know, full of character um, echoing around the room. And, uh, and footsteps are a massive thing for us in this show. So um, we record live feet for every episode. Um, so the feet have been recorded on various locations. Some of it's the shooting locations used in this show. Some of it's just various manor houses that we've had access to over the last few years. And we've built up a huge library of walks, which we've recorded, you know, natural walk-ins, walk-aways, tracking walks. So you can just, you know, fit it footstep by footstep. And so every foot in the show is actually cut in. Uh, for the interiors anyway. I mean, exteriors, we largely lean on Foley, traditional Foley. But yeah, the interiors are all hand-cut by one of the sound editors. Um, and that's not a single first step. You know, that can be five five layers deep of getting the right carpet, the right kind of floorboard underneath, the right creek, and you want a base sweetener. Oh, and we want to make sure it's a leather sole. So you kind of just add these various ingredients until and blend it until you've got the right thing. Um, but it's a beautiful thing in this show because when someone's approaching a room you can hear it for sort of 15 seconds as they slowly come up a corridor and you know come into the room and, and we do do that in the show very much and uh yang gives us those shots that are held long enough for it all to happen so you can get a sense of a uh, chartreuse approaching for you know a whole conversation then he suddenly arrives and you just heard him slowly tickling up to you i'm glad you point that out because it takes you know um it it, it takes the picture editor giving you the room and the space to kind of tell that part of the story acoustically without just cutting from dialogue to dialogue to dialogue, you know, and then taking all the air out of it. So um, I know you guys have worked together, uh, uh, obviously on this show, but also on some others. Can you talk a little bit about your working rela- relationship? I mean, uh, Lee, are you feeding any sound effects to Jan while he's cutting picture or is it, uh, is Jan, are you doing your own kind of sound effects work while you're cutting? And then you guys have a little bit of tug of war when you get on the mixing stage or how do you, how do you, how do you navigate that together? Uh, Jan, Jan always sort of sets up, he knows what he wants it to be very much. So there's always a, a very good skeleton or foundation 
in the Avid. If he's really struggling, he'll he'll give me a buzz and ask for some sounds. But, you know, he's got a library he's using as well. But I'd say, yeah, you know, Jan's got a lot of thoughts about sound and, and you, get, you get it from the cutting copy. It's not one of those things where you kind of get something served up and it's like, figure out how you're going to make this work. <laughs> yeah, my, but yeah, the, the the approach that I have is sort of, you know, the pictures and sound go together. You know, it's like the idea, it's, you know, it's the fusion of those things, you know. So I kind of, I have to believe the scene and sell the scene to myself first before, you know, screening it to, to others. And sound becomes part of that. And it's really interesting, you know, because when I go in, with you know and and you know i take it to that place and we talk about it and then lee and the guys come on board and they sort of take it up to this you know this 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 other le- level and, and it's really fascinating so sometimes you know that you're in that room and surrounded by these sort of speakers and this it's sort of all of a sudden become alive and there's something in it sometimes occasionally like be, i'll be like it's not you know because sound can change and edit can change everything it can change the intonation it can change the nuance all those things you know and you hold on to that. Sometimes you can't. It's not like you give a no because you give it because you know what it is. You don't really know what it is to give the no. You know, you sort of just. So when it's like that, I'm, I go to Lee. Can I just go back to what I did? Can you just play me, you know, the temp track from the Avid? And he's like, he sort of looks at me, presses play, and it's this tiny little track that I thought in my world before sounded amazing and now you're in this Lee's space in this room you know and he plays it and it just I go I'll forget that it was awful you know it's like you think you remember but this evolution of this sound is sort of taken on this 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 whole new world but you want to be reminded of where it came from and the two therefore the two things go together but it goes from you know a two to a, an 11 you know you know we did the scene when Diana leaves the house and she's for the first time she leaves the girlfriends you know and she's confronted and that door opens up and the paparazzi there and the secret, you know, the um, secret police guys or whatever they are, you know, to protect her, you know, MI5 or something, you know, and the crowd and the paps was her sort of first experience of that. And it was interesting. We were sort of working on that sound. We had it sort of in the avid to a point, but we did some picture changes there, didn't we, Lee? There was some picture, we did a picture change and then we did a sound change and I sort of came up with this, why don't we take the sound around the back of the car and lose the stuff from the inside. And, and, you know, and sort of we went down that road and about two days later, the sort of email popped up from Lee and sort of going, I think we've lost, I think we've lost all that magic. You know, what, what did we do? What were we thinking? And I was like, I agree. And you sort of go two days back and press that. I mean, it's not just pressing that button, but you go back to what sort of like my instinct where it started and Lee's instinct, what he did. And somehow we messed with it, but somehow luckily with, semi smart enough to go let's undo all that and go back to how it was because it was much better you know and that's kind of kind of our relationship i guess you know I feel like the paparazzi get 
acoustically, they get bigger and bigger every time we see them and they're, they're more intrusive. Lee, can you talk about, um, that must've been a, a challenge for you to kind of build and shape that the presence of the paparazzi and, and to communicate kind of what effect that had on Diana? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's something that of course we were very aware of and, um, making them feel threatening and, and aggressive. So it's a, it's a combination of effects tracks that are giving us a real kind of energy of, uh, of aggression um, of the shouts and then specific loop group is shot that's giving you the, the actual questions that are relevant to any given moment and then always a barrage of cameras. Um, but they're not all the same, those scenes as well. For, for instance, then you go to the, uh, the airport when, um, when Diana's saying goodbye to Charles and he's leaving. And that's a scene in the rain. I don't know if you remember that, that sequence. Um, and the scene ended up being entirely ADR because they were shooting in so much rain anyway. But Jan and Ben were both uh, desperately keen to hold on to the intimacy of the moment. And what that allowed us to do, having the ADR, it gave us real freedom there. So uh, we, we, I guess we were grabbing onto the fact that uh, this, at this point in the relationship between Charles and Diana, nothing's gone wrong really or you know you've got the inkling of it but it hasn't in her eyes so he's still very much her, her prince charming and her protector um so we were able to kind of carve a bubble for them within that moment the paparazzi all go sort of underwatery and, and reverby and um and the rain kind of drifts away as well and we carve them this sort of intimate space there for their conversation which which yeah absolutely shows what what charles could have been her protector her savior from from the paparazzi rather than the kind of startled startled deer in headlights that she is when she's confronted on the street on her own by them and the like. It's really interesting. I think what you did, you know, going into that, I think, you know, that sort of very first scene, going back to the one in the car, you know, I think, you know, she's full of smiles and she's full of joy. She's she's just about to embark on this extraordinary, you know, this this change in her life, you know, this sort of, well, this fairy tale. And that moment when the guy, that, you know what that closes the door and there's this sort of vacuum around it this sort of protective vacuum and you sort of the paparazzi all of a sudden are outside and she's in it full of smiles you know and that again it's that sort of those little moments that are sort of well what you know spin into so many other moments where and, and by, bit by piece by piece they're chipped away and there is that that vacuum like you know i guess where he goes right but it sort of disappears you know, that first fairy tale, that stepping into it, she's sort of, sort of smiles and it's sort of in, and that's the bit we, we, we altered and went back to, you know, that I was talking about earlier, you know, and that's sort of, I think that's where it sort of, that's its nucleus. And from there on, onwards, the paparazzi and as you, as we all know, become, you know, more and more. So yeah, challenge for the, for the next season. So this episode is really, um, I mean, one of the main things that you're accomplishing narratively with this episode is <clears throat> this arc of Diana and her journey from it starting off being this fairy tale and she's, uh, you know, uh, becoming a, she's going to become a princess. And, and then little by little, uh, Lee, I, I like how you, you brought up that sequence in the rain when Charles just proposes and then leaves for several months. Um, things just slowly start to get more and more sour for, for, uh, for Diana as, as she comes to realize that. Buckingham Palace in this life is going to be kind of a gilded cage for her. One of the sequences that I find really remarkable, and especially because it's no dialogue, is is the the sequence uh, when Diana is uh, kind of just dancing ballet by herself in Buckingham Palace.
Jan, can you tell us a little bit about kind of how you approached this sequence and how you built it and shaped it? Because it starts it starts in such a, a carefree exuberance, but then it goes in a very different direction. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I'm, I pretty much cut that once. That was it. it, it you know, I think I, I think I made two small changes to it, and it never changed again. And it sort of, it, it, and it was a the evolution of it was sort of sort of changed musically and and, and with sound. But you know, where she, where she was prior to that scene, you know, the the, the revelation, the realization of Camilla's being in contact with you know her. Um, with Charles, you know, and she hasn't heard from him at all, you know. And, it, and it, so I thought we used made the scene, you know, her pushing back. It was sort of her. There's a something that makes her happy with dancing, you know, and ballet, and, and that's how the sort of scene starts. And it, you know, and it was I mean shot beautifully by Adriano, but the the sort of it 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 just naturally evolved into this into into what it became and on the day you know when ben filmed it you know the actress was she sort of danced sort of this bits of ballet but she also did this little bit of contemporary dancing and then at the end ben just what in the last take he just sort of went just go nuts and she just went nuts and sort of just went this crazy stuff and as soon as i sort of piece it together i was i just like well it can't just be the ballet she has to sort of this is she has to the, the penny has to drop and she has to sort of go i've just found out that you know this has happened and the sort of dance turns into that, and and I kind of wanted to sort of, and, I, and this is what I like, I really like this, you know, in sort of editing decisions when you make them, and so I also wanted to sort of see that even though she was sort of in this exuberant happiness, to sort of transition to this loneliness and sort of longingness of her, you know, that she does love him and she wants to be with him. So in the middle of that sequence, there's that twirl. I just cut to her sat on the floor in the middle of the room, right in the middle of it, in, with all the music, and she just looks to the door, and she's this sort of small, you know, princess alone, whining, pining for this, you know, this prince to come back, and then it comes back to the dancing, and then it goes into the chaos, and it was all rehearsed with a share track, you know, and then and then I, I cut the scene with a bit of score from Martin Fitz, and and then it sort of evolved into. Elton John, I mean, who would know? It was like a sort of piece of alchemy, you know, and it just all came together at that point. And I remember sort of going, okay, I can't stay with Elton. And so I transitioned to Martin Phipps's cue and sort of in that chaotic bit. And the sort of two things really went well together. It was like sort of amazing. It sort of it echoed through. And there's so much buried storytelling in that, you know, from A, from Elton, and B, from this sort of, you know, this young girl. It's it's so layered. It's extraordinary. It sort of leaps into 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 history, you know, as, you, as you're watching the scene. You know, it's a, it's a... I mean, she was such an important character. So, so to have a scene like that, where, again, like you're saying, with no words and just this visual thing, but yet it's telling you so much about what you already know and this character, this sort of type of woman that she was, you know? Yeah, and, and you know, obviously this episode is just, it's full of pathos because, of course, we all know how the story ends, right? And even... You know, exactly. as I was as I was watching the as I was watching that sequence, and I, I realized, oh, this is an Elton John song. And then, of course, I think, oh, the relationship between Diana and Elton John, and his version of "Candle in the Wind" that he did, like it just it's so rich. Yeah. And even you know, I, I, even you know, people who may not know that history, 
it takes on that kind of weight. It's really just it's beautiful storytelling. It, it, it really it really does, and it's not and it, like I say, it's, this is not like a binary thing. It's not like oh yeah, let's do this scene that's put out in genre. It, the, the evolution of that is goes from you know a girl that an actress who, who doesn't really dance ballet, you know, and sort of you know who isn't you know to this space, the cinematography, to Ben's ideas, to a pop song to a crazy bit, to a piece of score, to Elton, it, it evolved over time. And that, it, but when it gets to that final piece, it's like, well, it was, that was what it, what, that's what it should be. That's exactly what it should be. And I, and I don't know, you know, if you ask me, you know, on something else and said, how are you going to do that? I wouldn't be able to answer that. It, that it's, that's the part of the journey that we all sort of embark on and, 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 and hats off to Peter Morgan for allowing us you know the creativity to do that you know that it isn't one thing that isn't on and off and it, and going and touching on what you're saying about we do know this we know this what we you know this history of this of this you know beautiful woman and the importance of and what happened to her and tragic tragic it all is is i was very mindful of that in the scene you know always to stay and lean into this innocent happy young woman always you know, and, and and always tread that very carefully. You know, because because you know it's unusual to watch a film when you know the ending, isn't it? You know, that's a very unusual sort of storytelling. You know, so I always always remain that it, all all the time to what would this young girl be going through in these experiences? You know, and 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 I and I imagine any girl around the world when she's sort of happy or sad dances around the bedroom, you know, to a piece of music, you know, it's relatable, isn't it? It's hugely relatable, you know, so she just happens to be in this huge, great big room or happens to be roller skating around this huge, great big palace. But I think we all do the same thing, you know, when we're in these, these happinesses and these lows of our lives, you know, so it's sort of, it's kind of that, you know? One of the things that really struck me uh, watching the show um, and this this episode in particular is subtext and the difference between what is being said and what is not being said. I think you I think you Brits do subtext very very well, um, and there are a couple of great sequences in this uh, show, Jan, that I, I I wanted to ask you about. I'm thinking first of all about the just that extraordinary lunch scene when Diana meets uh, Camilla. Uh, for lunch, and she starts off, and Diana's very powerful at the at the at the very beginning of that sequence. She's very assured. She's very confident, and we kind of see her crumble a bit. Um, and I I was struck even by you know the way the scene was blocked and shot. They're not sitting opposite a table from each other. So they're sitting on the same almost on the same side of a table, almost kind of looking at each other in profile. It's sort of like a, a French angle. Uh, they're shot sometimes shot from behind. Can you talk a little bit about putting that sequence together and narratively what you needed to accomplish? I mean, Ben said it's really interesting. You know, Ben said to me, um, he rehearsed the scene, and, and interestingly, when he rehearsed it, he you know he he rehearsed it with um, you know with Charles in the room, you know, at, at, at the table. And had the three of them, you know, sort of this, the love triangle, you know, and put the three of them in the room and, and then sort of ask, you know, ask the actresses to sort of remember that. And then when they came to shoot the film, this is the rehearsal was sometime before, but when they came to that scene, you know, he, he kind of reminded them that Charles is in the room. Charles is the food. Just think of him as the food between the two of them. You know, that food is your weapon, you know, and, you know, historically we know that Diana had these, you know, this, 
sort of, you know, issues with bulimia and stuff, you know. So it was a sort of magnifying of that. And when Ben rang me, sort of filmed it, he said, when you're going to love this scene, he goes, I've shot it so simply, you know, which is sort of, you know, it, it, it doesn't need to be complicated. It, it was shot with them very simply. And I, and that's how I kind of cut it. I cut it very simply. And then but at the same time, he, he picked up all the stuff on the plates, you know, as he does, this sort of detail of the, the meringue and the food and everything else. So, so as the sort of um, Camilla sort of lows upon lows, these sort of, poisonous darts that sort of fire into her you know that she spent all this time pushing around the food and sort of camilla you know eats and talks at the same time you know and it was that kind of detail that again is sort of representing you know it's the the the, the sort of i know something you don't and it just sort of expands and expands and expands until the point where her only defense is to sort of eat this sugary high calorie sort of food you know and then and, and you know peter's brilliant writing you know we, this is a place where you sort of have a starter and a dessert you know there's no main course you know it's all sort of layered in there it was, it was a really complex sequence to mix as well wasn't it yeah and i'm trying to yeah sort of get, trying to get my head back there but that whole sequence where you were talking about the poison darts but where camilla's really laying it onto her and, and as diana starts to go into the plate i remember we we did one version where we really drifted off Camilla's words. And so she went off into kind of into a reverby space and we really tried to get into Diana's head. We tried a version where kind of a bit of score came in as well. Um, I just remember just going round and round in circles on that sequence of trying to find the most effective way to land it. And not we never, yeah, yeah, there was an idea that I sort of carried over for some time and it was really nice because sort of by the end of it, when every sort of other people in post and executives watched it, Never really sort of taking it away, but I think Gang Lee and Nikki Moosley, who's the post-production producer, sort of, we had that sort of, again, that sort of, that email at the end of the day going, should we just put it all back, like, sort of straight? Like, how, you know, sort of like it sort of goes, that was a great example of that. I sort of had something in the cutting room that turned into something else, became something else, but went back to being two women talking in a room. I'm struck by something that you're both saying, and you brought it up a couple of times, uh, both in the construction of the ballet sequence and then your experimentation and, and trying different approaches to this particular sequence at the lunch. It really seems like the producers gave you the time to experiment, try different approaches and find it. And, and uh, that's such a gift. We're not ruled by the schedule on this show. There is a schedule, and there's a post producer who desperately wants to keep to the schedule. But ultimately, it's got to be right. So if you get to the end of the final mix and, and something's not working in the episode, Peter's really happy to open up the episode, make a change to the cut if that's what's needed. Um, if we need more time in the mix, we spend more time in the mix. If we need a new cue, it happens. You know, we don't we don't just say that's it. It's the last day of mixing. It's going out. You know, with people not being quite happy with it. Yeah, I think yeah, I think having a you know that sort of central creative mind at the in the middle of it, at the well, all of it at the center is pretty useful, you know. One of the sequences I really love is the uh, the montage sequence of the royal family getting ready on the wedding day. Lots of people here went to the fireworks display last night in Hyde Park, and then came straight down to the palace afterwards to make sure they get a good spot. We're now getting closer to that point when Prince Charles. And then Lady Diana set off the tour. A scene that will be quite literally flashed around the globe. King Queen of the Belgians, King of Norway, with the Crown Prince and the Crown Princess, Queen of Denmark and the Prince of Denmark, 
King, Queen of Sweden, the Queen of the Netherlands, the Prince of the Netherlands, Grand Duke and Grand Duchess of Luxembourg, Prince and Princess of Liechtenstein, and the Princess of Monaco. The next time we see that coach, we'll be peering inside these windows to see if we can get some idea of what the wedding dress really looks like. on their wedding day. But fairy tales usually end at this point with the simple phrase, they lived happily ever after. This may be because fairy tales regard marriage as an anticlimax after the romance of courtship. As husband and wife live out their vows, loving and cherishing one another, sharing life's splendors and miseries, achievements and setbacks, they will be transformed in the process. One of the reasons I love it is because it's such a juxtaposition of scale. You know, the, the television is giving us kind of the reaction of the world. And yet what you're giving to us is this real intimacy of people being dressed. And it, it, almost in a way... Like you could say, well, sure, it's much cheaper to shoot <laughs> to shoot people getting dressed than to stage a wedding. But at the same time, narratively, that also gives us something really, it almost, it really reinforced to me like how lonely these people are. Yeah, I think that the, the sort of final montage was sort of it. You know, it's the, I mean, obviously, you know, obviously the decision was net where we were never going to go to the wedding. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, to stage that wedding would have been ex yeah, extraordinarily expensive and, and something that, you know, you could go and watch on YouTube and, you know, millions and millions of people have seen, you know. So knowing that at some point, there was, I'm sure lots of people, when it sort of got to the end, some people, you know, they saw, sort of see the dress go away. And in my mind, it was sort of the way it was framed, that Charles was sort of, it's like he was looking at her, you know, sort of leaving this sort of big train, you know, and there he is making his decision. And in that sort of journey, I scoured over tons of archive of the wedding. In fact, I watched so many hours of it and I, I sort of knew the wedding inside out you know and sort of looking for bits of archive to go into the televisions and kind of got sort of seduced by it you know sort of I watched it the pre-stuff and the build-up you know because it's the sort of time I sort of remember as a young person you know so I saw it all in a very different way you know how you would have seen it back then so and I sort of went through all this stuff and then I stumbled across post the sort of wedding vows was this there was this read from the archbishop you know this sort of voice where he started to talk about fairy tales and I, I my, my sort of jaw dropped I mean his voice is extraordinary and I just sort of thought and I was going to put something in the end roller that was, I was going to sort of go shall I just put a little bit of the wedding it's going to be, it was going to be this like top shot St Paul's Cathedral with this BBC camera looking through the sort of circle at the top with these two little characters and all these sounds the people in these altar chairs and I kind of made it, never showed it to Peter or anyone, sort of scrapped it. But I found this voiceover and I thought, you know what, why not? So I sort of pieced it together and put it in. And it just, in my head, it sort of, for me, having watched all the archive, it sort of, 
it leapfrogged you into the wedding that you were not going to see. It, and yet the words were so right for what the pictures and the story you were telling. I mean, who would have thought, you know, those sort of words that were coming out were sort of saying all about these sort of what marriage means and what two people mean to one another. And this huge Greek tragedy of what this two characters are about to unfold, as, as again, what we were saying earlier, what you already know about this story. But in my mind, I wanted to allow some people to go, Okay, you didn't show us the wedding, but you've got the VO from the Archbishop, and isn't that good? You know, this voiceover sort of somehow takes you there, but doesn't take you there. That was kind of my feeling with it. And I played it to Peter, and he was just like, leave it. Perfect. Don't change it. That's it. You know. So, Lee, did, Lee, did, did, you, did you replace the Archbishop re recording, or is that actually the original? No, no, that's the original, it's, it's the original sound. But it's the original sound, but... Uh, quite late in the dub, we we're trying to work out how to give it more scale. It was quite a thin recording, so um, we ended up creating a stereo uh, by feeding it into Pentio um, to, to suddenly give it a width that the uh, the other dialogue didn't have. So, uh, you know, that and a, some EQ and all the rest of it to give it give it a, a, a richness, let's say. But yeah, so it's rescuing some pretty damaged archive. Yeah, I, it's it's kind of funny. I I didn't even realize that we didn't see the wedding. It, I, I didn't miss it. You know, you, you get that sense of scale from it. Uh, Jan, you brought up um, the sequence uh, with the, uh, the scene with uh, the queen and Charles the night before the wedding, when she gives him the duty speech. And uh, I, I do want to touch on that because it's a really extraordinary scene and uh, there's a lot going on there. I have a feeling like, you know, many years from now when Olivia Coleman is, 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 uh, is, is starting to, uh, receive her lifetime achievement awards. This is this this is one of the scenes that they're going to play. Uh, I think it's going to become iconic. great-grandmother, Queen Mary, was a beautiful young princess. She was about to marry her Prince Charming, but before they got to the church, he fell ill and died. But everyone had been so impressed with her that they put her together with his younger brother. Only one problem, the younger brother was Prince Charmless. Dull and shy. There was no attraction, certainly no love. But in order to make the marriage work, they were encouraged to focus on the bigger idea, duty. They worked and worked and worked. And out of that work, a tiny seed grew, a seed of respect and admiration, a seed that grew into a flower they could eventually call love. They were married for 42 years. They stabilized a country that was at war with itself. And they left the crown stronger while all around them, the great monarchies of Europe fell. You know, what a, what a gift to both of you, the, the way it was blocked and shot with the fireworks. And 
I want, I'm just going to let you guys tell me a little bit about how this sequence was put together. Just the, even the extraordinary fact that, you know, they, they're both standing, looking out windows and talking kind of past each other, you know, it's, it, 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 yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, again, all credit to Adriana and Ben, you know, the sort of that making those decisions on the, on the, you know, he rang me again. That's that thing. He does that call going, I'm, I, I may have made things difficult for you because I've got practical lights outside for fireworks, you know, so they're going to be changing colors. And then on top of that, it goes, I'm not really going to have them look at each other. You know, that's what I was like, okay. You know, and then, and then when, when in the, in the original script, when she first arrived, you know, the first line she says when she entered the room was, have you got rid of the other one? And I cut that wow. line immediately. But then I just, but then that line, I just thought, well, how am I going to convey that whole piece of dialogue and that on that one line? Have you got rid of the other one? That's basically it. So I took that line out and then, and then the scene sort of played. And I do remember having a feeling when I was sort of behind, you know, Olivia Coleman, you know, when she's sort of delivering the bit, which is extraordinary to sort of deliver that line where about, you know, that you sort of learned basically learn to love somebody right it's sort of this powerful word love and i sort of stayed behind her was sort of like and that sort of, is that as you say it's interesting framing she's sort of looking you're sort of over the sort of behind on the profile but charles is over here too sort of defocused and i just remember thinking you know this sort of not just feels right it just feels really really right this way you know to sort of sit here and i sort of had goosebumps and it's one of those moments where I remember this in sort of season one in certain scenes that sort of Peter writes and sort of, uh, you know, other directors and other editors have made where there's a sort of certain feeling where the, it harks back to the core of the crown. You have these little scenes every now and then you go, that's a crown scene. It sort of goes back to this. It's not just us. We're little people too. The crown is bigger than us. It's this huge thing. And when she does that monologue, I just sort of sat there and just went, this has got to be played as simple as possible. And, 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 but you know, and Charles doesn't say a word. And I just stuck with those, basically those same two angles. I, I did have some problems with the lighting and had to split screen some shots just to get the pinks and the blues to match. And I was quite, I was quite delicate with the fireworks. I was quite intimidated by the sort of noise of the fireworks. And then I passed. It came to sort of Lee, and Lee sort of sort of went right. Okay, the fireworks are going to become part of this thing, and it was just extraordinary. I just, I just sat, I was, I just went, how does this work? It has this little bit of music that we use in there that sort of harks back to Duck Shoot, which is sort of a little echo of that Martin that sort of recreated one of the original cues. And for me, that was one of my that for me is a, a defining crown piece of dialogue. It's one, when Peter writes that. You know, where other European monarchies have failed. You know, this is, this is, this is like a bigger picture. You just, you just, it makes me shudder that these people, you know, this family, this sort of, you know, this huge sort of, you know, um, lineage goes back so far and so important. The smallest things that tie it together, you know. Dialogue wise in the scene, we play of the space. So at the front of it, we're, we're really exaggerating the, uh, the scale, the size of the room on, on the voices. So you convey sonically that the distance between the two of them, that the shots are also revealing. Um, so you'll very much hear a change in, in quality on Olivia's voice as, as you have with Charles and she's speaking at one end of the room and you cut over to her and it goes close and intimate again and she's talking in Jaria. Um, and then the fireworks, as you say, I, I absolutely tried to, to score the sequence. Um, 
build into a final sort of barrage at the end as she really lets rip and you get the kind of the finale moment of the, the ripping, cracking sort of skyline. Um, and then there's a couple of beats along the way. So Jan's talking about, Olivia mentions the word love twice and both of those moments, the fireworks disperse off into reverb and all, all becomes a little bit romanticised and, and then back in crackly again as she starts to uh, to snipe away at him. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's, yeah, it's really impressive how, how they did it. I didn't, I didn't think it would work, and it did. And it's sort of interesting, um, you know, when he made more of that, more of the fireworks thing, you know, then narratively, you know, how all these things sort of come to fruition is, you know, when when I went into the, the the montage scene next, you know, the day of the wedding, you know, and I found all the archive, and I found the the you know the real guy talking about the morning of the wedding, you know, the weather, and he goes, and some people were. We're in high part last night, you know, went to the fireworks, you know, so these, right. that, you know, the two things you see, it goes together. They're, they're, they for me, that's the storytelling is, yeah, they went to the fireworks in high part, but they didn't see what went on in that room that night, you know, that's, the real, the that's real fireworks the, that were happening in the real the fireworks, yeah. you know, and that's so by, by Lee sort of making the narrative of these fireworks and not to be, you know, less being shy and go, do you know what, should we just put the fireworks like, like they're really far away and we don't hear them? Magnifies the storytelling. You know, that's how it all sort of, you know, comes together, which is just, which is um, not always planned. It just evolves. You know, it's kind of, that's the beauty of it, isn't it? The, the other ingredient that's running through all of that is, of course, the crowd that are actually over in the park. So you've got the kind of through the window, the hubbub of them out there constantly. And then they scream and react to specific moments within the fireworks, which, again, just adds a kind of a, a tension and an, an emotion to the moments, I suppose. It puts even more pressure on them because you don't really think about the royal family and the palace in, in, in Buckingham Palace being able to hear the crowd outside. But of course they can, right? We've always talked about them being goldfish in a bowl, which is essentially what they are. Yeah, it does. It puts the it's the pressure, isn't it? The fireworks become, you know, it's that thing, isn't it? Is is it's down is sort of streaming this this sort of this you know monologue to him, and it's like it's the people outside, you know, expecting the wedding. You know, it's like the fireworks are cracking away. There's no way out. It's this. You're not backing out of this now. You know that they go together. That's the sort of remarkable thing about this this sort of um, you know this storytelling. You know, yes, we're dramatizing. It. Yes, all of that. But you know, it's that it's what happens behind. You know, I may I imagine many, many, many people when they've got married, don't they? The night before, you know, they're sort of in that sort of ah kind of you know. And the outside is the sort of all the people supping the champagne. They're like, shall I tell them now or shall I tell them tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> But this is slightly, the stakes are slightly higher, but it's that, I think that, and that's kind of the fireworks, you know, by not, by the bravery of Adriano lighting it that way, by the framing of that, by Lee going, I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to tell this story. They're over there celebrating. It all comes together. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's truly an amazing sequence. Uh, I know that you, uh, we're just barely starting to work on this uh, episode when COVID lockdown happened. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you uh, how you pivoted and how you finished the episode? And Lee, how did you how did how did mix uh, reviews work? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Redesigning post production for us really. We were sort of four weeks into the into the show, just started sound editorial when uh, when lockdown happened over here. Um, so we were pretty quick onto it. Uh, 
one of the first things we had to do was create a, a mobile ADR kit. It's got, you talk about these things now and they've become like normal terms and, and you know, remote this, remote that, but just none of it was there at that point. So we were, we were aware that we had a, a number of um, more elderly actors on our cast and that people wouldn't be wanting to come into town even if we could put them into an individual studio with a, a recorder in another room. People just didn't want to leave their houses. We were in lockdown in the UK. So, uh, yeah, one of the first things that happened was uh, uh, Jib Brand, the ADR recorders at Boom, myself, uh, we, we talked through various options and came up with a kind of kit that contained an iPad, um, a clip mic, a shotgun mic, um, that could be sent to the actors with a simple sort of video of, you know, how to set it up in their own room. And, um, and then Jibran was running the sessions from Boom, um, using Zoom to put out the picture at that point in those early days. And, um, and, um, was it clean feed to record discrete feeds back into the Pro Tools? So, so that was kind of challenge number one. Spotting sessions were happening using, uh, was it Frankie, the, uh, the software we're using, Jan. Um, with the, the cutting room sharing it with us. Um, sound editorial, that was kind of fine that people, you know, I'm sat in my room at home at the moment. So, you know, most people are set up to, to work at home now. That's not such a, a big deal. Um, but then from remote ADR, we went into remote crowd. And that was like, you know, a new kind of like mind boggling moment. Um, but it turned remote out a lot crowd. of the loop artists actually had. Oh, <laughs> no, George that Rocking. sounds terrifying. But yeah, a lot, a lot of the uh, crowd artists have actually got setups at home. So um, tests happened beforehand to ensure that we had levels that worked and you know settings that worked for them. And again, using uh, using clean feed to get it into Pro Tools it meant you ended up with like a crowd track that could be sort of 20, 20 layers deep at any given point um, because everything's on a, a separate microphone. So everything took a long time in terms of cutting it um, and then mixing it because you have to explore so many faders. But it gave you a beautiful uh, level of control, which I'll find it very hard to go back to. Here's a stereo track with 10 people talking or whatever you might get. You know, it's really nice being able to kind of pick and choose what, what aspects you really wanted to feature at any given moment. Um, and then on and on it went. So then we were mixing and we still weren't out of this palaver. So um, lots of positives. I think there's lots of, I think sort of positive change came. You know, I think everyone has a sort of positive change with COVID. I mean, we, picture-wise, we we were just two weeks out from um, end of filming, so they lost two weeks of shooting, didn't they? They and one of the apps, Avalanche. Two, two days they were short. Yeah. Oh, two days they were short. So we were kind of in that respect. But what is, you know, what I think what's come from the sort of what you know Lee is having to adapt. I think picture-wise, I worked from home a fair bit before, so it wasn't so hard for me. But my assistants and other assistants had to sort of, you know, all sort of move these editing equipment into their homes you know into their living rooms and so you know so it was a that's that was difficult you know for the, the technology to connect us caught up and the process sort of then found its water you know with the the notes process and everything else and and, and then the technology sort of evolved and you know, all of a sudden the next thing we're color grading on these screens and as lee saying you know I, I did I, I sort of mixed with those guys on camera in a room and they were in the background and I sort of sat at home with these sort of nice headphones on. I was like, this is pretty good. You know, and I sort of, <laughs> Lee would press a, every time I gave a silly note, he'd sort of mute, uh, mute, mute me or something, you know, I'd be sort of I like this. Argh. And then the sort of evil, evil, that sort of evolved, in, I think from VFX to everybody to this process is sort of caught up. And then, and then the reality came sort of after that, which is, you know, with this COVID thing is, there wasn't any people out there filming the next shows and that's when the cliff edge come. And it just makes me think, 
we can do all this remotely with all this technology, but unless a load of really tough people get together and turn those cameras on and run around dressed as different people to go shoot, the rest of this and us are un uh, irrelevant. You know, it's that I had a big gap. I'm sure you did too, Lee. You know, we were lucky on that time to sort of finish the post on the crown, but there was that gap when things didn't happen. And I think, you know, that's, that is a reminder to us all that with all this technology that it, it, putting some people together in a, in a field with a camera and some sound microphones is what is the only way we make stuff. You know, that is it. For, for the actual mixes, Glenn, that, that still happened at Boom, my studio in Soho. So we just did separation within the building. So myself and uh, Stuart Hillica, the dialogue and music mixer on the episode, were alone in the main mixing room. Then we put the director on the floor below in a, in a smaller sort of Dolby certified pre-mixing room. So they were having a, uh, their room was chasing our room. So they were hearing exactly what we were hearing through, through a different space. And then the, uh, the editors were linking him from home on headphones. What we're using for that clear view to, uh, to share a stereo feed of what was coming out of the console. Um, so that's how the whole mix was conducted. And then for the mix review, everyone then came on site. Uh, myself and Stu didn't go in for the mix review. We'd go into a separate room because uh, we had to keep keep working. Basically, you know, we're straight onto the next episode, sort of thing. So we just couldn't get couldn't catch anything. Um, but so so the producers and the like all gathered in one room to to watch it, and then they had an hour to kind of give us notes, and then everyone would disperse again, and we're back into our little bubble upstairs. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Well, I think you just uh, partially answered this question, but. Lee, so you're the supervising sound editor, but you also mix the show. So, um, so you're supervising the editorial crew. And then once the mix happens, did you just say that, so you're mixing effects and then you work with a, another mixer on dialogue and music? Correct. Yeah. Stuart Hillica mixed the uh, dialogue and music on this one. How does it affect, you know, it's an interesting, I, I like that combination, you know, the supervising sound editor who also mixes, but can you talk a little bit about wearing those two hats and is that a more efficient way for you because you're, you're, you're prepping your tracks, thinking as a mixer and mixing, thinking as an editor and vice versa, right? I, I think so. I absolutely love to, to, to mix my own stuff. Um, so even the premix is like the final stage of editorial for me where I'm pulling it all together and making my last decisions and, and, and making those choices. But yeah, I know the material inside out. So it's sort of rather than playing Chinese whispers in many ways, people ask you for something, you know where it is, you're, you're on top of the material. And if you want something to be different, uh, it's your job, you know, so I've got my sound minor running and, uh, and I change and tweak and it's sort of, yeah. I always assumed that that was completely normal. And then one, I did a mix on a different show and Lee wasn't there. I was like, where's Lee? They're like, oh, yeah, he's, he's doing something else. This time. <laughs> it is, I just thought it was completely normal. He was always there. It just felt, felt like him and Stuart are sort of so cohesively, umbilically connected in a brilliant way. The only, you only notice that Lee's gone when <laughs> he's on another show. So. I've been mixing with Stu for, for the best part of 20 years. And I guess after sort of 13, 14 years of sitting in a room together, I got a bit bored of the sound of my own voice, asking for things and suggesting things. I thought, you know what, just yeah. do it yourself. So, uh, <laughs> so at that point, we moved the effects faders over to my side of the console and, and off I went. <laughs> well, I, my, my final question for both of you is, uh, it's been, it's, it's, it's a really amazing experience watching the show. And of course, you know, as an American, I have a very different perspective on it than you two, but, um, but it really, one of the things that I love about the crown is that it really, it does humanize the Royal family. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to ask both of you, 
working on this show, has this changed how you feel about the royal family and about how you feel about the institution of the monarchy now that you now that you uh, have a, a greater sense of these people as human beings? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very interesting question, <laughs> isn't it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we're allowed to answer that. I mean, it's, it's really so for, for, for me. It's a yes. Greater empathy, of course. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and it's been a real history lesson for me, anyway. Working on the show, it's kind of like my jaw just hits the floor as Peter finds some other unimaginable detail. It's like, seriously, that happened as well. It's like you just couldn't write a lot of what's happened to them. So, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the Queen. Wow, what a lady. <laughs> yeah, no, it is extraordinary. And my experience of that is actually the, is the other way. Is I, I, I have, you know, I, I admire them. Actually, I do admire them. I do admire the Queen hugely. So before I even made the crown, I actually met the Queen Mother at St. Paul's and I was at, at Cub Scouts, you know. So I guess it's, you know, it's in, it's, you know, it's in our, in our, you know, in our lives. But, they, um, but I did, what I do experience though is people, look, friends and, and, you know, like sort of mums and dads at my kids' school and you sort of meet them and they sort of go, oh, you're working on the crown, you know, that you have this reaction. I've had this before where people react and sort of go, oh, I'm preposterous. So why would I want to watch a show about the Queen? And you sort of cut to about two months later, they come up to you and go, by the way, the crown's amazing. <laughs> and it, 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 and they sort of have that, you know, the thing that Peter Morgan is so clever at, you know, uh, he, he puts the sort of sugar in, but he puts the pepper and the salt in at the same time, you know, and that's what people experience. They sort of come back and go, hmm, yeah, you know, that, that they, they, they learn something and they experience something and it sort of becomes about this sort of, this, this family that's just sort of, you know, larger than life, you know, it's extraordinary. So I have that quite a few times. Why on earth would I want to watch that? People in frocks and clothes and stuff, and they come back, and it's sort of like it, you know, the experience is more like watching The Sopranos or something. You know? <laughs> it really, <laughs> well said. It is. It's sort of, you know, yeah. Well said. Well, Jan and Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to do it, to talk to us about this uh, uh, fairy tale episode. It's really just a amazing work. Congratulations to the both of you on your Emmy nominations, and good luck at the uh, at the proceedings in a couple of months. Thank you. Thank you you for having us. Many thanks again to Jan Miles and Lee Walpole for taking the time to speak with us and congratulations on their incredibly well-deserved Emmy nominations. I also would like to thank our friends at Netflix who put this conversation together for us and provided us very generously with those amazing clips to, to look at and discuss. If you haven't watched this season of The Crown, I really encourage you to do so because you are missing out. You can find it on Netflix and as always via the links in our show notes. And if you haven't already, please make sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. We will have more coverage on some of the Emmy nominees coming up in the next few weeks that you will not want to miss. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in the show notes or by searching for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on the Apple Podcasts app. It really helps us raise awareness for the show and continue to grow our audience. Until then, thank you for joining us. This has been the Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines. Thank you for listening.